our message on the short but incredible life and ministry of Stephen. And we're going to zip through the first part of that this morning to get to where we left off last week. Now, recall from Acts chapter 6, verse 5, that Stephen is one of those who was chosen as the seven. He was chosen among the congregation as men of full of wisdom of the spirit to help take care of a task of serving the widows and making sure that their needs were met. And then last week we saw as well that Stephen expressed not only that, but he was also a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, demonstrated in him performing great signs and wonders among the people and very powerful preaching. Now this morning we're going to study again his defense because he ends up getting arrested and we only got partway through that. But to set the context again, let's look briefly at Acts 6, uh, 7 through 15 and remember why that he's in jail. Acts 6, 7 through 15. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians, Alexandrians, some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, the church continues to grow. There's been a lot of things that have already happened. Uh, persecution has already started. The apostles have been flogged. There had been some internal dissent. But the church is still growing. And many are coming to faith in Christ. And Stephen is one of those at the forefront of declaring Christ to the Jewish community. He is doing miracles among the people. In fact, it says great signs and miracles. And he's a bold preacher, apologist for Christ. As I mentioned last week, signs and miracles throughout the New Testament are always connected with the proclamation of Christ, preaching the gospel. Because the signs and wonders were given for the express purpose of authenticating the message that was being given. Now, the Jewish traditionalists recognized that there was a serious threat against their their traditions, the way that they practiced Judaism because of this quick rise in the size of the church and the fact that a great many priests are now coming to faith in Jesus as well. The synagogue of the freedmen were those who had been captured by Pompey in 63 B.C. and deported to Rome. They had established a colony there and their descendants became Hellenistic Jews, those from outside the land, and were influenced by the cultures wherever they were. Some of these later immigrated back to Jerusalem and they established synagogues. And there were a lot of synagogues in Jerusalem. Uh, remember I mentioned last week that Josephus said there was about 480 in Jerusalem itself at this time. Now, it would appear from the wide diversity of the regions mentioned, Cyrene and Alexandria, both in North Africa, Cilicia and Asia, what's modern-day Turkey, that Luke is referring to more than one synagogue. It's possible that Stephen, that's a Hellenistic name, may have been a member of one of these synagogues. That's one reason why they were opposing him. He was one of their own. Or it's possible Stephen was actually going into those synagogues, much as Paul would do later in his missionary journeys, and declaring the truth to them. Now, they argue. The argument here is in the sense of debate, formal debate, pros and cons of here's what we believe is true, here's why I don't believe what you say is true and why this is true, and going back and forth in the Scriptures. 
But they were overwhelmingly defeated each time because of the ability that the Spirit had given Stephen to declare the truth and show through scriptures that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Now, as often is the case when a person clearly loses a debate and yet refuses to acknowledge the truth, they resort to unethical means to silence their opponent. And we find that in verse 11. Then they secretly introduced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So that is how Stephen ended up on trial before the Sanhedrin. I pointed out last week that these false accusations caused Stephen to lose favor with the crowds. Consequently, the Jewish religious leaders are no longer afraid of the crowds and they drag him away. This is a word that shows an increasing violence from what they had done earlier with the, uh, the apostles. They place him before the council and though they see his face like an angel, probably a reference that he had a glow about him, probably similar to what Moses had when he came down from Mount uh, Sinai in Exodus uh, 34, Though they see even this, it doesn't dissuade them. They receive the testimony of these false witnesses. And they make four charges against him. That he had, was blaspheming Moses, that he was blaspheming God, that he was speaking against the law and speaking against the temple. Now Stephen is given a chance to make a plea and defend himself. The high priest, verse 1 of chapter 7, tells us, just simply ask, are these things so? That's his opportunity. What is your plea? What is your defense? And Stephen begins his defense with great respect for them. Though he disagreed with them strongly, as we will see towards the end, he still shows them great respect. He calls out to brethren and fathers. He calls attention the fact they are both, they're all Jews there. We have the same heritage. And shows respect to these elders in Israel, calling them fathers. You couldn't do better than that. He was doing what he was supposed to be doing, giving his position and their position and showing them. If you were before a judge that you didn't have any personal respect for, you would still call him your honor. There's the same kind of thing going on here. He shows the proper respect. Stephen then goes on in verse 2 with a defense that's not made with a goal of acquittal. That's important. His goal isn't to get off. It's not trying to get out of trouble. His goal is to present the truth, demonstrating that the charges are false, but at the same time, presenting Jesus Christ to these people who need him desperately. He's not going to back away in any way from the truth. And he does it according to the Jewish culture, which loved to recount their history. So he demonstrates his own belief by going back to their history, pointing out certain aspects that shows his belief in God, his belief in Moses, his belief concerning the law, and his belief concerning the temple, that he is orthodox. He's not blaspheming. He's not speaking against these things. Now, I covered Stephen's defense concerning the truth about God last week, so I'm simply going to summarize verses 2 through 16 without even reading it. Stephen gives a brief history of God's covenant with Abraham that was then passed through Isaac and Jacob to the patriarchs. He is emphasizing throughout this God's working through the covenant made with Abraham 
despite anything that goes on. He specifically points out Joseph and the various trials that Joseph went through, Joseph being part of the covenant, and that God in his sovereignty used Joseph despite the evil intentions of the other patriarchs, his brothers, selling him into slavery to bring about what God had prophesied beforehand. 400 years of captivity, then brought out to be his people and and, uh, take over Canaan. So Stephen here is demonstrating he believes that God is sovereign. He is not blaspheming God. He could not blaspheme God. It would be completely against what he believes about God. So that's his defense. I agree with you. I hold God's covenant with Abraham, our father, down to the present. No blasphemy of God. In verses 17 through 36, Stephen now affirms his respect for Moses. And he recounts highlights from Moses' life going from birth through deliverance. He then will go on in verses 37 to 43 to talk about the law that came through Moses. Now, in recounting Moses' life, Stephen also points out the rebellion of the people against him. Stephen has not and would not blaspheme Moses, but the nation did from the very beginning. Verse 17 But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. This is referring to Genesis 15, 13 through 16, and it's approaching the end of the 400-year period that had been told to Abraham that they would be oppressed. Verse 18, Until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. That's recorded in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Remember, Joseph had become second in command of all of Egypt. And he had preserved Egypt. And so he was revered. But over all that length of time, the memory of that was forgotten. And finally, a pharaoh rose that had no mind. These were people to exploit instead. Verse 19, It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. This is referring to a fellow named Tutmost the first, he was an ex- exceedingly cruel man. He became Pharaoh just before Moses was born in about 1530 B.C. The reference here to exposing the infants as he had required because the nation was getting so large, the Hebrews, that all the male children were supposed to be killed. But remember, the midwives would not obey him. They would obey God instead, and they wouldn't kill the babies. Verse 20. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in words and in deeds. Stephen is emphasizing Moses is born at the right time right towards the end of this period that had been prophesied. And he was educated because of the circumstances by which he ends up in Pharaoh's household to be prepared to be deliverer of Israel from bondage. So that's demonstrating. This is what he believes about Moses. From the beginning, Moses was called to do this, even before the call at the burning bush, which he's going to talk about in a minute. Moses was born at the right time. And even though the cruelty of Pharaoh was such that he wanted to kill, to murder the young Hebrew boys, that very same thing ended up of how Moses ends up in Pharaoh's household and is trained 
in all the knowledge that was existing at that time period. That's God's sovereignty. You recall the story. Moses was born for three months. They were able to have him at home. But, you know, babies eventually do get loud and it was going to be dangerous for the rest of the family. So they made a little basket, put, filled it with pitch so it would float, put Moses in it, sent Miriam down, put him in among the reeds and let's see what God's going to do. And Pharaoh's daughter came out and found it, one of the Hebrews' children, and adopted them as their own. This is God's sovereignty. Stephen is pointing out his belief in this. He's not blaspheming Moses. But he goes on, verse 24. And when he, that referring to Moses, saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Moses is about 40 years old here. And we are told that this is his effort. He wants to be the deliverer, but this is the wrong method. And it's not God's timing yet. So Stephen goes on, verse 26. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? And the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? He's pointing out the Egyptians are cruel taskmasters. You are fellow Jews. You're both Hebrews. Why are you treating each other such a way? His goal was to show that he wanted to lead them, that they should be unified together, build a coalition, and he would help free them from slavery. But instead, he received a very rude rebuff, Exodus chapter 2 tells us. This is his goal. He wants to be the deliverer. But it wasn't yet God's timing. They were rejecting him. Verse 29, and at this remark, Moses fled because he was also sure that the Pharaoh also knew about this and that he had chosen. In fact, Hebrews tells us he chose to identify with the Hebrews rather than Pharaoh's daughter. And in that choice in killing the Egyptian, they were going to be after him. So he flees. So verse 29, at this remark, Moses fled, became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw it, he began to marvel at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came a voice from the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and have come down to deliver them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. So this is God's supernatural call of Moses in Exodus 3 and 4. Moses had acted on his own the first time, incorrectly. Now he would act because he was specifically told by God to go do it. So again, he is reaffirming, I believe in the supernatural call of Moses. He's not blaspheming Moses. But he goes on in verse 35, This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the forlorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So again, Stephen's saying, here's what I believe about this man. He's clear. He regards Moses a man called by God. The comment there in verse 36, stressing the fact by pointing out his belief. God worked through Moses, through all the plagues on Egypt, 
the crossing of the Red Sea, and the many miracles that were performed in the 40 years in the wilderness wanderings. He believes all those things about Moses. Stephen did not and would not blaspheme Moses. However, Stephen also made it clear that the nation of Israel did initially reject Moses. And yet God used him as a deliverer anyways. They didn't want him as a ruler and deliverer. God used him that way anyways. But in God's timing. Well, in verses 37 through 43, Stephen gives the history of the coming of the law through Moses. And he stresses certain points in which the people, including the present Sanhedrin, would not obey Moses. Remember, his accusation is you're blaspheming Moses and you're speaking against the law. He's going to demonstrate, I am not blaspheming God, Moses, nor am I speaking against the law, but you are. Verse 37, this is the Moses. Make sure they have it correct. No other Moses. This same one whom God called, who led us, our, our fathers out of Egypt who did all these signs and miracles, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and received the living oracles to pass on to you. So he specifically cites Moses is the one through whom the law was given on Mount Sinai. That's recorded in Exodus 19 and 20. And he brought it down to them. He calls the law here the living oracle. Oracle refers to a brief utterance or short saying. And that's a good description of God's commandments. Ten short commandments, very succinct. That's the oracle, the living law. Living because it's not just words preserved in stone. They are full of meaning that penetrates the soul to reveal what is in the heart of the man. And that's still true about the Word of God, isn't it? Sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide asunder the soul and the spirit. It can do things that you can't. Still true. Moses received the law and then he repeated it to the nation so they could live according to it. And then Stephen specifically points out that Moses is the author of the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19, that there was a prophet to come like himself that they needed to listen to, and if they didn't listen to him, there would be judgment upon them. Now, the insinuation here is very direct. That prophet has come. It was Jesus Christ, and you didn't listen to him. That's why he puts that in there. This same Moses prophesied this, said it's coming. You haven't paid attention to him. Stephen did not and would not speak against the law. He upholds it as coming from God through Moses. Now, in verses 39 through 43, Stephen now goes on the offensive. Now, you might have thought he was already on the offensive. but No, now he really goes on the offensive. He points out that the Israelites had rebelled against Moses and the law from the very first time it was given. Verse 39 and 43. And our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has happened to him. And at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch 
the star of the god of Ramtha, the images which you made to worship them, I also remove you beyond Babylon. Now, among the many, many rebellious acts he could have cited, Stephen points out the rebellion against Moses and the law that occurs in Exodus 32. Moses already given the Ten Commandments. They had, he already told them, but he actually went up the mountain and was being etched in stone. God was writing it up there for him. And while he's on the mountain, he's up there for a long time, 40 days, and you recall the story, where's Moses? We shouldn't be out here. We should go back to Egypt. And they make a golden calf. And they worship it instead of the God who created them. Directly against the commandment they already knew. Now Stephen then condenses all the rest of Israelite history simply pointing out that God then gave them over to their hearts for idolatry. And what was the greatest struggle for the nation of Israel all through the rest of their history? Idolatry. The whole rest of the time they're a nation until they're taken away in captivity. They struggle with idolatry. Worshipping all the foreign gods they were told not to worship. And so he points that out. So talk about encapsulating a large part of time in a brief sentence. That's what it is. is They were marked by idolatry. Disobeying the very commandment from God that came through Moses. Disobeying the law. And then he cites Amos chapter 5 verses 25 through 27. And the judgment that was pronounced because of that idolatry. Even citing that in the wilderness wanderings they were idolaters. Stephen changes the last words of that particular prophecy from Damascus to Babylon because Amos was uh, speaking to the northern tribes. He now encompasses to include both captivities, both Israel and Judah. Northern ten nations taken away by Assyria. The southern nation eventually taken away by Babylon. So beyond Babylon, encompassing them both. Stephen had not spoken against the law, but they had. That's his point. Let me add here that there's specific accusation that he was speaking against the law that was that Jesus would, quote, alter the customs which Moses handed down to us, unquote. Now, it is true from the sense that Jesus was seeking to alter their customs. Stephen was seeking to do the same thing, but not the customs handed down from Moses. He was seeking to alter their perversions of the law and their perversions of the customs handed down from Moses. Jesus spoke against that often. Recall the whole Sermon on the Mount. That's its basic thesis. They have perverted my law. They have perverted the practice of godliness and righteousness. So in chapter 5, he gives not only the, the Beatitudes, here is the characteristics who are going, those who will be in my kingdom, but also you have heard it said and then correcting their teaching on the law. Chapter 6 was always, you have seen or here was the practice of the Pharisees don't do that. Do this instead. So yes, he was seeking to alter their customs, to bring them back to where they should never have changed from. Well, Stephen has shown he's not a blasphemer of God, Moses or the law, even though the people of Israel often were. In verses 44 through 50, he goes on to cite the history of God's dwelling among the people to show that while the temple is good, it's not necessary. That's important. Verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. 
And David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So the first thing Stephen points out is that God had directed the tabernacle or the tent of meeting to be built in the wilderness. That's Exodus 35 through 40. And there's a lot of detail there. If you've read through Exodus, it gets a little tedious. Uh, every little detail of this is, is spelled out. All the ornamentation, exact sizes, exactly how it's going to be made, what materials, how it's going to be carried. All the details are there. It came by God through Moses. And that the tent of meeting was to be the location where God's glory would reside among the people and where the sacrifices and the worship was to take place for God. And that continued until the time of David. And we are told that David desired to build a house for the Lord, but he could not. First Chronicles 28.3, he had asked, the prophet said, go. Then the Lord spoke to the prophet that night and said, no, tell David, he cannot, he is a man of bloodshed. A man of peace with the one who build my temple. It'll be his son. And the Davidic covenant is instituted at that point. So David didn't do it. It was Solomon. Solomon actually built the temple. And then what Stephen does not say, but which they were very keenly aware, was that Solomon's temple was destroyed. It was rebuilt by Zerubbabel after the captivity, but that temple was also destroyed. And the current temple that they were, had was not even built by a Jew. It was built by Herod, an Idumean, the one uh, descendant from Edom. And that's the one they were talking about. It would be destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. So Stephen then goes on in verses 48 to 50 to point out the truth about God's presence. He doesn't need a temple. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You see, God is greater than anything you could ever build him, isn't he? Stephen had not spoken against the temple, but even if he had, the temple itself could not be the issue because God is greater than anything man could ever build. And that's still true, isn't it? Growing up where I did, there was a large Catholic church down the street from us and I remember it had a, it's still there, still drive by, and it says, this is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. Is there such a thing? And yet, that's still a common belief among Christians of all stripes. They think the building they come to worship in is the house of God, as if God is here. Could this building contain God? No. Could you, in your wildest imagination, with unlimited funds, build a house worthy of our God? No, and that's the prophet's point. You could not do this, and God never commanded it. He commanded the tabernacle to be built. He conceded having the temple built. But God never has had to exist in the temple. And they were so concerned about the temple, just like their forefathers before them, remember before Solomon's temple was destroyed, the people had this idea, as long as we had the temple, God's always going to protect us. That somehow God would protect it because... Well, that's where he's supposed to be. And yet God had written Ichabod on that temple long before his glory had departed. Same thing true with Zerubbabel's temple. When they departed from walking with God, he departed. He doesn't need the building. He doesn't. We live under the new covenant. Where does God reside? Within the believer. That's the wonderful thing about the new covenant. He exists within you. 
His Spirit resides within you so that He convicts you and leads you rather than having to have a law that's written on your heart. This is the covenant of circumcision of the heart that talked about even in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 10. Circumcise your heart. It's not an outward thing. It's an inward thing. And living in the new covenant, here's where he is. Now, we're grateful for the buildings that God will allow us to have that we can use for worship. But always keep in mind, whether it's this building or any other church building you ever go into, those are God's concessions for your benefit, for my benefit, not for his. He doesn't need them. They can't contain him. This is simply a building for our convenience to gather together to corporately worship him. But he resides more in our praises, not in a location. He's omnipresent. Well, Stephen's conclusion is not an apology to an acquittal. He has already shown the accusations against him, they're false. And in the case of the temple, they're irrelevant. He now brings home the point that they are the ones that are blaspheming God and all of his prophets, including the prophesied righteous one. He is not the lawbreaker. They are the lawbreakers. Verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those that previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have received the law as ordained of angels and yet did not keep it. Boy, that doesn't sound like the thing you should bring before those who are going to judge you if you want to get an acquittal, does it? But he's direct because there's something more important here. They are no different than their fathers. Stiff-necked, it's an agricultural allusion to a, uh, an animal that's supposed to be plowing and you, know, you steer it by pulling on the reins and the, heads, the animal turns and the animal goes that way. And a stiff-necked animal won't let itself be turned. You're stiff-necked, you're stubborn, stubborn you're unwilling to obey. They were uncircumcised. Uh, uncircumcised in heart and ears. This is a direct accusation. They were not keeping the Abrahamic covenant. This is the equivalent of saying, you guys are Gentiles. Now talk about something that would be stinging to them. Whoa! And then saying that their forefathers had killed the prophets of old and they had killed the righteous one. The Messiah, the one prophesied from old. They had received the law that came from God through angels and yet they did not keep it. How then could they accuse and sit in judgment of Stephen who did keep it? That's the point. It's also, he's got to bring conviction to them if there's any hope of them ever being saved, isn't there? A lot of times we want to pussyfoot around the truth when we're witnessing to somebody. We need to be careful of that. Yes, tact is important. Graciousness is important. We want to do it like our Lord did. But unless there is a conviction of sin, no one is going to turn to Christ. They will end up turning to something that's false, a caricature of Christ and not the Christ of Scripture. We need to understand we are sinners in need of a Savior. But when Peter had preached a similar sermon in Acts 2 in which he had laid the responsibility for Jesus' death at the feet of the people, they cried out, how can they be saved? They understood it. They understood they needed that Savior and that they had offended Him. And that would be the desired response here in this situation. But the evil hearts of these men would not let that happen. The opposite occurs instead. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They were convicted like those in Acts 2. It's the same term, cut to the quick. They had been cut to the quick earlier by the apostles. 
Now here's the third time we see that exact same phrase. But instead of the conviction leading to repentance, it leads to anger. You ever had that happen? You know, you had to confront somebody about something and they're convicted, but instead of saying, I'm so sorry, please forgive me, they get angry at you? Well, this is a common response of humans and this is what they were like. It says gnashing of teeth at him. That's the idea. They're grinding their teeth and clenching like this and making noise at him. I mean, it, they're mad. Now, hopefully you've never seen anybody like that, uh, especially if you're a child that you've never seen your parent like that at you. That's mad, isn't it? That is mad. Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's given this glimpse of heaven. Now, we don't know how he's seen this, but he's seeing this. And there is Jesus. He's standing at the right hand of God. And that is too much for them. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears. They rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes, the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. When Jesus was on trial, he was asked if he was the Son of God. And his answer was, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And then they charged him with blasphemy because of that statement and they crucified him. Stephen now is describing the scene he's seeing and guess who he's describing? The Son of Man whom they crucified and guess where he is? At the right hand of power. This is what Jesus already told them. They can't take this. And so this council, the Sanhedrin, the elders of Israel, this is a court, becomes a mob. They can't stand to hear what he's saying, so they cover their ears. They're also shouting. They're making noise. Remember, the, the idea of clench your teeth, there's, there's noise coming out at the same time. They're angry. And they're shouting things to make sure that nothing he says they hear at all. They don't want to hear what they're considering blasphemy. They had practiced blasphemy all their life, but they don't want to hear the truth. And so as a mob, they, they grab him and they push him out. Now, the only semblance of law that still maintained was this driving him outside the city. And then they did have the witnesses who were involved with that. But the Sanhedrin didn't have the right to carry out capital punishment because they were under Roman rule. They didn't have that right. In addition... They no longer feared doing whatever they wanted to do either. Remember, it's only been two and a half, three months, four months maximum since they had completely uh, usurped Pilate, shown him to be a powerless individual. They'll do anything they want. They don't, they don't care about Pilate anymore. Besides, Pilate is probably in Caesarea. He's a long ways away. So they act as a mob. They push him out and they stone him. Luke introduces us to Saul here by noting that the witnesses laid their coats at his feet. Saul was a student of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of those in the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. Saul was from Antioch. He may have been one of those who was actually debating Stephen. He is approving of the stoning. Stephen proves to be as powerful a witness in death as he was in life. He calls upon the Lord Jesus to receive the Spirit. 
And then, like the Lord, he cried out on behalf of his persecutors. Lord, don't hold their sin against them. The same kind of thing that Jesus had cried out on the cross. So even while being stoned, here's where you really still see Stephen's heart. Was his message back direct? Was he confrontive? Yes. But it never was from anger. It was never trying to you know, usurp them, show them up or anything else. It was trying to bring them to knowledge of the truth that they might turn. Because here's his heart for them. Even while they're stoning him, Lord, don't hold it against them. He desires mercy upon his murderers. Stephen is the example for us to follow in the midst of persecution. He's a bold witness. He would not compromise the truth. He would not back down. And yet, he deeply cared for his opponents. That's not always easy, is it? Too often, we may get into a conversation with someone and then an argument breaks out. And unfortunately, it becomes an argument, not a debate. Not a presentation of, here, look, look at these facts and they present their facts. It goes back and forth. Pretty soon, name-calling gets in there. Pretty soon, it's emotion that's being generated. And do you really care about that other person? It's all about winning the debate, isn't it? That wasn't Stephen. He cared generally about those he was talking to. And the things he said were designed simply as bring these people who should know better to the truth that they can repent. That should always be our desire when we're talking to people. And yes, it can get heated out there. And yes, you can have people treat you pretty rottenly. And yes, you will have. Not can have, but you will have people lie about you. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said it. You will have people lie about you and say all manner of things against you falsely when you're living in righteousness. How do you respond? Stephen is the example. Never out to win an argument. His goal, to proclaim Christ regardless of personal cost. But what about you then? What would you have done if you were in Stephen's shoes? What would you have said to the Sanhedrin? Now, you may not know your Old Testament history well enough to do all that he did, but what would you have done if you could have? Do those around you even know that you were a follower of Christ? It's an old story, but it's a sad one. The man who was going to start a new job and he and his wife prayed about it because he was scared that they, he might get you know, in, in trouble at work when they found out he was a Christian. So they prayed and prayed and he finally started a new job, came home. And his wife asked him, came in, said, how did it go? He said, oh, it was great. They never found out I was a Christian. We don't want to be like that, do we? Do, do the folks around you know what you believe? Is your life lived for yourself or for the God that created you? Stephen lived his life for Jesus Christ. And when he died, he's still living with Christ, isn't he? Even today, that's where he is. So short life, short ministry, powerful life, powerful ministry that continues on to this day and its impact. I am sure that Stephen heard when he arrived there. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Will you hear that when you stand before the Lord? Is that what you're going to hear? Because it can be and it should be. What will you hear from him? All you need to do is follow him. Place his will above your own. That's really all it takes. Sounds simple. I know it's hard because we really want our will more than the Lord's. But that is really how simple it is. Put God's will above your own and he will use you powerfully. I have no idea how he will do that or what he will put you through. What kinds of things will happen? 
But we can trust Him because He is good. And He knows what is best for your life and for your impact, not for the present, but for eternity, beyond the present. Would you be willing to live a life as Stephen lived a life? I would. I pray you would as well. Father, we are grateful for this story, this recounting of this man, Stephen, a powerful man in faith, a powerful man in the Word. And Father, you used him in a powerful way. Father, we admit and we must admit before you that in our humanity, we desire long life. We desire ease of life. We desire not to have problems. Forgive us for how often we are more concerned about our ease and pleasure than about your kingdom and glory. Father, work on our hearts that we might become people like Stephen. More concerned about you, your glory, and more concerned about those around us despite their reactions to us that we would be willing to declare the truth in love without compromise. Father, we're grateful that we can place our future in your hands and trust you for it. Whatever it may be, however you may use our lives, however long they may be or short, because we have this hope in Christ that life isn't about the here and now, it is about eternity. And the here and now is simply striving to do things that will have an impact for eternity. Father, this is the Christmas season and Though our society is very rapidly running away from even the reason that there is this season, the stores and such that don't even say Merry Christmas, schools that won't let you have Christmas break or Christmas program, it's all holidays now. But yet, the carols are still out there. Even if they're not played with the words, they're still there and we can sing the words. There is a greater openness at this point in time. Give us many opportunities in these coming weeks to declare the truth of Jesus Christ and that there was a reason that he came as a baby. And it wasn't to be cute or set a romantic scene. The Father, he came to identify with us, to be a man, live a perfect life and then die for us on the cross. Then rising again to offer us eternal life. Father, let that be the message in our lips, declared to all those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.